Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody back today. We have the absolute pleasure of being here in Montgomery with Commissioner Kim Boswell, and she is the Commissioner of the Alabama Department of Mental Health. And at this point, I'd like to hand it back over. Mrs. Boswell, if you would introduce yourself. Thank you, I'm Kim Boswell, the new Commissioner of the Alabama Department of Mental Health. I was actually sworn in on December 16th um, so this is actually my first full week as Commissioner of the Department of Mental Health. Uh, I followed behind Commissioner Bashir, who had been here three and a half years, and she made the decision to retire. And so in about a two week span, I learned that I was going to be the new Commissioner of Mental Health. And so uh, I'm very excited to be here. I've been working in the field for a really long time. You know, my job is really to lead this department to achieve our mission, which is to serve, empower, and support people. Uh, it's who we are and what we do. And uh, I'm just very excited about that. You know, we plan and implement programs all across the state for individuals with intellectual disabilities, as well as individuals with mental illness and substance use disorder. Yeah, there's quite a broad range of, of people that you guys serve uh, in mental health. <clears throat> and I imagine you said the 16th was when you were appointed commissioner. Uh, so it was kind of nice to have the holidays to group there and be prepared <laughs> to come in. Um, and, you know, congratulations um, on behalf of everybody yeah. uh, on the appointment. So, yeah, you're right. I, it gave me a little time just to organize and really think about the goals for the department and really kind of, you know, what's top priority going into the new year get my office organized, put the pictures on the wall, all those things that um, this week I would have never had time to do. Yeah, <laughs> so. I feel like everybody's slammed the first week of the year. Yeah. It's like getting back in the office and yeah. emails. Yesterday's emails, Monday's emails in the first of the year are incredible. Yeah, right. It's like 20. Um, so uh, speak a little bit about your previous work in mental health. Sure, I really started um, with the Department of Mental Health serving uh, with the Alabama Developmental Disabilities Planning Council 27 years ago. And really that organization was sort of my first introduction to intellectual and developmental disabilities and uh, worked there for three and a half years. And it really gave me a great opportunity to learn about the services, to learn about the individuals, um, and so it really provided a good foundation for me to really understand how services worked in Alabama. And then uh, three and a half years later, I transferred to the Alabama Department of Rehabilitation Services and began working sort of as a program evaluator and then eventually as the state transition coordinator. Uh, that was a great opportunity to work with the school systems and help youth transition from school to work. Mm -hmm. uh, so that gave me sort of a little bit different perspective on uh, services for individuals with disabilities, how they engage with the school system, and then what it looks like when they transition into the community. I imagine that's such a huge, uh, I don't want to say pain point, but that transition is so crucial uh, for those individuals, um, transitioning to life outside of the school setting. Right. Uh, and it's a big transition for the families at that point too. Right. Uh, it, it used to, we talked about it a lot because really you have a very clear path when you're in school and uh, the majority of your services happen in school and then hopefully you have the supports you need at home. 
But then the minute you hit that transition age and you're out in the community, uh, you really have to navigate really hundreds of different services and try to figure out what's going to be best for your family. And, and that is huge. Mm -hmm. And uh, families need a lot of support at that point to help navigate that system. Yeah. Um, from your time in, in that position, what would you say is one thing that sticks out as contributing to a lot of success during that transition? I really think the most important thing is having a really strong support system mm -hmm. and really the relationships that are developed uh, along the way and individuals outside of the caregivers who really engage with the individual and uh, really become a part of their life over many, many years. If I think about success uh, and I look at the folks that I've known uh, who've been really successful, they had a really, really strong support system. Mm. Now, how would you say, how would you encourage families to kind of cultivate that? You know, there are a lot of um, different ways and I think about, you know, kind of how it happens. I think it is a good thing for uh, as as young folks are growing up for parents uh, to talk to each other. Uh, for example, at rehab, we had a program, uh, you know, a state parent coordinator and a parent program that engaged families. Uh, and then we also have similar programs here uh, at the department um, where families can engage with each other. Uh, and then I also think really um, getting individuals out and in the community, mm -hmm. those relationships really happen naturally. If someone is engaged in the community, if they're engaged in their church, if they're working, even if they're working part-time, uh, the same way that we all develop a support system really works for individuals with disabilities. That's okay, we'll keep going. Um, <clears throat> we're recording too. So, um, the church community is great here in the state of Alabama. Um, and I've spoken with or seen a few families that maybe are hesitant to get their kids out into the community into some situations that are uh, not, nor, uh, not um, they're not familiar with uh, that are new situations there. So breaking that barrier and saying, you know, if we put in the work when our, our kids are young, um, they'll be more ready to tackle life ahead with the support network that they naturally grow with. Right, right, right. And some larger churches have actually started uh, programs in, in an effort to engage individuals. Uh, you know, for example, individuals who are deaf or individuals uh, with intellectual disabilities. I know my own church really did a lot of work to engage individuals that, you know, sometimes in a large church, people have enough options that they can go, even if they arrive together they can go in a lot of different directions and have choice about, you know, which service they go to, which Sunday school class they go to, uh, or how they engage in other church activities. Yeah, there's a ton of activities there and opportunities to make friends right, and get right, those right. connections. Taking a little bit of a step back, what initially drew you to social work? You know, as usual, uh, there are a couple of reasons, uh, you know, both personal and really related to my faith. I was very fortunate to come up in a church that was mission-minded. And so um, on Saturdays, we would go to the nursing home and visit with individuals. We often would go to local jails and provide services or just talk to people, just engage them or sing or, or do other activities. 
and really, you know, at that point began to see the struggle and the loneliness that people experience. Uh, so I really began to understand that I wanted to help people. And then, of course, as with many in the field, I also have uh, individuals in my family that struggle with mental illness and addiction. And so that certainly had an influence as well. Um, but as a profession, I really uh, was drawn to social work because it operates under systems theory, which means we don't just look at the individual. Uh, we look at the family system and the system of care that's serving them to figure out how all of those things can work together to better serve individuals. And as I got to graduate school, I realized I really wanted to change systems mm -hmm. because I really felt like if we could get that right, we would solve a lot of the issues that people were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, uh, the systems work and really understanding that we all operate in a context and either things are working for us or they're not. And how do we change those systems really to better serve the individual? Um, when you say it like that, I think of systems change as um, taking a lot more time than doing an individual change. It's almost like if you have a fleet of ships, uh, you have to move them all at the, you know, little by little, and then you're, you're going in a different direction, but it's a lot of work there to get everybody moving in one direction. Um, kind of along those lines, what do you see as your vision for the future of ADMH? You know, I really want uh, ADMH to serve, empower, and support people to live their best life. Mm -hmm. And I'll use uh, one example. In the field, we've talked about person-centered planning with individuals since I can remember. Yeah. And, and we've dreamed about it, and we've talked about it. And uh, the department, uh, in fact, just before this interview, I was talking to the new service coordinators for our new community waiver program. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited about that because we have an opportunity to do that right, to really do person-centered planning with individuals where we talk about their strengths and abilities. And, you know, we, ha we actually have a document. We actually um, are actually going to do that. And it, it seems like we've been talking about it for so long, and now we've finally gotten to a point to where we understand enough that we're really going to do it. Mm -hmm. We're really going to implement service coordination and person-centered planning the way that we've all dreamed for so many years now. And um, it, it's really, really an exciting time in mental health because um, what we've come to understand is it's not really about programs. You know, systems change is not so much about getting the right program in place. It's about connecting people and supporting people. I think that's very important, that human connection. Uh, if I get frustrated and um, working with an organization or with a company, being able to pick up the phone or meet with somebody makes a huge difference for me. Right. Now, there are people that can do it online or on the computer. I'm not one of those people. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I, I have to meet with, with somebody there. Now, you were, go ahead. Yeah, um, the the person-centered planning, is that part of the home and community-based services? Is it 2020 um, or is it 2021? I can't remember there. I know we have a deadline for that transition <laughs> there. I kind of put you on the spot with the question. <laughs> um, but I think that's, uh, you know, I've heard about that, that person-centered planning for a long time. And um, we're doing it with my family member, and it has made a world of difference for her. And what it comes down to for her, she's nonverbal. 
um, and um, she functions at a, a very low age intellectually. And um, she does communicate, but in her own way. And right. so there are, there are key markers that we can say, is she enjoying this or does she want this? You know, is she smiling when she's doing that? Well, then she wants to be doing more of that. That makes it very easy for us. Is she yelling or is she not happy in that situation? Well, we'll stop doing stuff like that. Now there, there are times <laughs> when I don't wanna go work out or go to the gym or go for a swim and she doesn't wanna do that. And we have to, you know, those right. things are good for us, but yeah. focusing on the individual and what they wanna do and what makes them happy can make a big difference. So we have a lot going on in the Division of Developmental Disabilities, and uh, my joke with them is they like to do everything all at the same time, <laughs> uh, but it just happens to be the way it worked out. There is a federal uh, requirement that we implement the Home and Community-Based Settings Rule. It was originally by uh, March 2022, and the deadline because of COVID mm. uh, got extended, I believe, a year. So I think the new deadline, uh, Melissa, is March 2023. Um, that's really started the conversation around how do we do a better job of engaging folks? And finally figured out in our division that we Uh, we'll wait one second. It looks like your mic dropped there. Okay. Well, pause, guys. You guys can listen to me for a second online. <laughs> we'll switch over to my camera only. We were just looking at new mics on the way up. So technology. Sometimes uh, it's perfect. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes your shoe falls apart. <laughs> what are you going to do? And we'll go ahead and turn it back on. And we'll just make sure that the audio is coming through correct for you guys. Uh, and I'd like to say in the chat, if you guys notice anything with the audio, please speak up. Um, and I will keep an eye on the chat and we can go ahead and get that microphone up and running again. Okay, great. Testing, one, two, go ahead. Uh, one of the most important uh, aspects of the home and community-based uh, settings rule is deconfliction of case management. What does that mean, deconfliction of case management? <laughs> so our existing service coordinators that uh, serve individuals on the Living at Home waiver and the ID waiver sometimes also work for a community provider. So they kind of wear two hats. They uh, perform service coordination activities as well as uh, work for the provider that also delivers the service. Uh, so often what would happen is the service coordinator in that organization may only offer the services that are available for that service coordinator. And so separating those two functions and having the service coordination piece be independent and autonomous from the list of services and the same provider who's, for example, providing residential and day hab mm -hmm. really made a huge difference in uh, is going to make a huge difference in how we move forward. Uh, the service coordinators, uh, you know, like us, they really want to do person-centered planning. They want to spend their time uh, really engaging with people. And honestly, the way that our service coordination was structured before, uh, that really just wasn't possible. 
And so separating service coordination from service provision is really what deconfliction means. And our, our service coordinators that have been around a long time are really, really happy uh, about that. Uh, it means a little change about who may employ them. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think uh, the 310 Association and others are very excited because they too get the opportunity to do the thing that they've dreamed about doing for a lot of years. Yeah. And we've tried to restructure, you know, adding additional case management hours and doing other things that will allow them the time they need to actually do person-centered planning because uh, as you know, it's a planning process that, that takes time that mm -hmm. and you want to engage with the individual uh, and spend the hours you know, bringing the family together, bringing the support system together around them, because really that's why people got into the business to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't get in the business to do, do documentation. Or the <laughs> yeah. yeah, being with the individual, I think is why uh, yeah. most people get into the field. Um, and, and allowing the case managers to focus on that as their job, that'll bring them a lot of happiness. Yeah. Uh, and it'll, it'll you know, feedback to the individual through that. Right. Um, now, so it sounded like there was a little conflict of interest with the, uh, the providers and the case management there. So the 310 boards are going to be uh, taking over all case management or they'll be as separate uh, companies that do case management? 310 boards are taking over case management. Uh, it took a little bit to get to that conclusion. Uh, the option that we were offering is if the, the 310 board they had to choose. They either had to provide only case management or only services. Mm -hmm. And so some really struggled with that choice because, you know, uh, it's a different model. It's a very different model. And the struggle was really around not being able to work with the people the same way that they had worked with folks before. Mm -hmm. and, and they, it was hard for some of them to make that decision. Uh, but the option that we offered uh, really was for the department to do uh, the case management, if the organization wanted to keep services, uh, we offered them the option for the department to do case management. Uh, at the end of the day, they all figured out a way to deconflict and uh, now 310 boards, they, some are serving counties that they didn't serve before. Uh, a little but, bit broader reach. Right, yeah. but as, an, as a group, they sort of got together and came up with a plan uh, that would allow the 310s to continue to provide service coordination for the living at home and um, ID waiver, which I think was a great decision. And I'm really happy that it all worked out that way. Yeah, we are, my family member has a case manager. We're very happy with her. Always calling, checking in, emailing. It's tough right now. She can't come out to the house and right. spend time with my family member, but uh, she's always asking how everything's going and everything like yeah. that. <clears throat> now you mentioned the, the deconflicting um, case management is there anything that really comes to mind about specific um, things that you're going to spearhead here uh, in the next year or so well of course the biggest initiative we have going on is the community waiver program uh, which is a new waiver and we hope to stand that up by february 1st and that really provides a different opportunity for individuals uh, in our old waivers, it was really challenging for us to engage with families uh, while they were, uh, let's say, for example, at the transition age uh, because we had a waiting list and some other structural issues that made it challenging. 
uh, for people to come off the waiting list in a, in a timely fashion. Often it was only when an individual was in crisis uh, that we were able to pull them off the waiting list. And so the community waiver really reaches, is trying to reach that group that will support families early on. Uh, one of the target groups is the three to 12 uh, year old age, as well as the transition age, and uh, also individuals that really are interested in uh, supported employment and work. And so the community waiver program is really designed to get engaged with families and individuals as early as possible so that we can support uh, whatever current structure, you know, so we can support families really uh, and provide the services so that we're not waiting until everything's falling apart uh, and then intervening. And uh, the new community waiver program really is going to help us implement the home and community-based settings rule as well because that is all about getting folks as integrated in the community as you possibly can. And so for a little while, we tried to figure out how do we make the existing waiver uh, work and finally decided that that just wasn't possible. And so uh, the Division of De Developmental Disabilities developed the new waiver uh, and there's a lot of information on our website about that. Yeah, I was going to ask, is it uh, people can sign up for more information or sure. request to be on the list? Is there a waiting list already for the new waiver? Actually, the new waiver is pulling from the existing waiting list. Okay. Uh, so probably six months ago, uh, we began making phone calls to individuals who've been on that waiting list. Yeah. Uh, who are in those age categories uh, to determine what their current situation is. And so there's not a separate list for the community waiver. Um, we're going to pull from the existing waiting list uh, and really trying to find out. Some folks, as you know, have been on that waiting list for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what we're doing and the work we started six months ago was really making those phone calls and uh, discovering where families are at the moment, you know, what their needs are now, because what they needed five years ago is totally different from what they need now. Yeah, I imagine they're ecstatic to get that phone call. Yeah. <laughs> like, you gotta be yeah. kidding me. What? Yeah. Um, but investing at a younger age, um, I, I bet that pays dividends long-term. Uh, it's allowing compound interest uh, for those families, right. uh, the eighth wonder of the world. And so yeah. uh, getting in at a younger age and being able to support that family, uh, I think will pay greatly for the department yeah. Yeah, there. Um, what are some of the biggest obstacles that you see coming up? Really the biggest obstacle I see is uh, lack of community providers to deliver the full array of services that we're offering under the new waiver um, and uh, also existing providers really shift in their business model to provide services beyond the traditional day have and residential services. Uh, right now we're in a pilot phase of the program. So the uh, community waiver program, uh, when it stands up, will be offered uh, in our f counties in our five different regions, but it is a pilot program. We think probably it'll be two years of a pilot program and then hopefully we'll be able to go statewide. What our big, big push is going to be is trying to develop provider capacity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would love to see more uh, consumer, you know, individuals and family members leading provider organizations. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I think that experience and that background would really uh, serve us well. Uh, but we absolutely are going to need a lot more uh, providers who are willing to provide what is considered kind of non-traditional services in our world beyond just the residential and day hub services. Beyond the personal care and the, mm-hmm. and the day hub kind of things. Right. Um, th- what does that look like for providers? Information sessions, conferences, how can they prepare for that? There's a lot going on. Uh, we have a staff member fully dedicated to that initiative. Um, there will be additional trainings, uh, additional information sessions. Uh, right now, that's a little bit challenging because they're trying to get the new waiver stood up. So um, once they kind of get through that initial uh, Medicaid, uh, navigate all the Medicaid requirements and actually get the go ahead for the new waiver, then you'll start to see a lot more focus on developing provider capacity. Mm, okay, so it's coming down the line. Yeah. Be ready for it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of a numbers question here. <clears throat> what is the number of people served um, in all of uh, ADMH and then kind of by side IDDD and substance abuse mental illness? Okay, so uh, IDDD, we have 5,687 individuals that are on the ID and uh, living at home waiver. Some of those individuals are only receiving case management, but the majority are currently in uh, a waiver. Mm -hmm. And then on the mental illness side, we have about 96,000 individuals that are served in the community on the mental illness side. Of course, that's children and adults. And then on the substance abuse side, we have a little over 32,000 individuals. That includes our substance abuse prevention programs as well, uh, which of course often serve a large number of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in our three mental illness hospitals, we served about 729 people last year. Okay, very awesome. And um, so from those numbers, uh, IDDD is less of a population under ADMH. And how is that correlated with how the budget is spent on those populations? Well, interestingly, uh, even though it's a smaller number, uh, IDDD represents 50% of our overall budget. Um, kind of the difference between the MI and SA services, um, you know, with DD right now, in particular, your 24-7 services, residential, uh, through federal funding, most of those services are paid for through federal funding. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the services on the MISA side of the house may be offered in an outpatient setting, um, not necessarily- 24-hour right. care kind of thing. Right. Uh, MI represents about 28% of the budget. Um, so really it's sort of the level of care, um, the difference in the level of care between those two divisions. Yeah. Um, but DD is, uh, our, our, really our biggest program. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you see a crossover and this is a community question? Um, do you notice individuals that experience some IDDD also experience substance abuse or mental illness or vice versa? Absolutely. It's actually uh, on my list of priorities for this year. Uh, And if you look at our budget presentation, uh, we'll do our budget presentation on January 28th. Uh, We have a new item in our budget for crisis care for individuals who are ID but also have a mental illness or substance use diagnosis. 
Uh, it represents a large percentage of the individuals that we serve. Uh, and it is an area we, we've been struggling with really over the last year to provide the right services at the right time for individuals who have that co-occurring kind of mental illness diagnosis to go along with the ID diagnosis. We have really examined our behavioral supports. Uh, we've looked at our incident management system to identify areas where we're seeing sort of ongoing uh, behavioral issues in a group home setting or in other settings. Um, so we have a huge initiative around crisis care that includes uh, individuals with developmental disabilities. Unfortunately, we do also see individuals who wind up in the, in the criminal court system or individuals who uh, wind up getting placed at our uh, forensic hospital, Taylor Hearn Secure Medical, uh, really because they didn't get what they needed on the front end. Mm -hmm. And that is of great concern to us. And uh, we've dedicated some resources this year to uh, do a better job with that. And then we're also asking for additional resources uh, in our budget request this year, uh, because it's just kind of unacceptable for um, some of the situations that we find. We do find also a lot of adult protective services cases that we've been working with DHR on uh, where, you know, the family situation broke down many years ago and now the individual is trying to make it in the community, but um, just has not been able to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so we're taking a pretty deep dive into uh, how we can do a better job with that. Uh, and we're seeing, I feel like we're seeing a lot more uh, than we've seen before of individuals who are, uh, you know, dealing with both of those issues. <clears throat> that crisis care, does that look like bringing in professionals that have been on kind of opposite, I don't wanna say opposite, but different sides of ADMH and bringing them together so they can teach each other? And uh, is it just teaching each other? Or are they actually working on individual cases together? Actually working on individual cases together. See, that's amazing, bringing everybody <laughs> together there. And as you have that wealth yeah. of knowledge and experience on, on both ends. Yeah, we started, um, gosh, it was in April during COVID. Uh, from home, <laughs> we started um, a working group called Complex Cases. And uh, that sort of started the conversation between sort of breaking down the silos and, and just bringing everybody to the table and saying, guys, you know, what can we do to really address this problem? And when I say complex cases, they were, you know, extremely complex. Uh, you know, Many lots of different issues. Met. And um, they actually, when you put them all in a room together, it's amazing what they can do. It's like a lock in the door. I'm not letting you guys out till you <laughs> figure like this that. out. <laughs> I, you know, as chief of staff, I kind of wore a little bit different hat and it's like, okay, I've let y'all try to figure this thing out. Uh, now this is how we're gonna roll. Yep. And uh, it turned out to be a great experience for the staff because they you know, they were struggling too. It's like, I got my little world, but they don't fit in this box. And then this person over here, it's like, well, we don't know how to deal with the mental illness. But when you put everybody in a room together and you let them brainstorm, uh, they really can, you know, figure out how to work with individuals that way. And I'm sure they were relieved to have the opportunity yeah. to do that. Uh, they yeah. were kind of feeling it on their shoulders as well. Yeah, because they would get very upset 
because, you know, heart-wrenching stories for individuals and then they couldn't figure out how, how to put it all together on their own to serve them. And so it relieved a ton of stress just mm. on our staff to know that, okay, if we all get together and work on this, then we don't have to feel so bad that we're not able to help this individual. Uh, and that kind of was, it, it was really the beginning of a whole conversation around crisis care and behavioral supports and what are we doing with behavioral supports, uh, even for group homes or other settings. And we engaged a national expert through our crisis care initiative that um, really helped us begin to look at that as a system. And even if it means like right now, you know, we're looking at uh, buying beds in hospitals while for that crisis stabilization period, but also wrapping around the very specialized services uh, for that individual when they're there so that they get what they need and then can become, you know, go into the community in a more structured setting. Mm -hmm. But again, the same issue we have with the new waiver is it's a struggle to find providers who really uh, want to do the behavioral uh, work that needs to be done. How do you incentivize providers to do that? You know, that's a really good question. I think it's one of the questions we're going to have to answer this year because um, how are we, you know, we put the money in the budget, but, you know, what are we going to do when nobody responds to an RFP? Um, I think there are a lot of ways to do that that we just haven't quite figured out yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but that'll be a big part of the conversation over the next year is how do we support providers really? Um, it, and how do we train them and help them become competent in providing those services? You know, really my experience with providers is they want to do the right thing. And if you provide the support and the training that they need, then they're gonna excel at doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's definitely time for us to do a pretty big push on uh, behavioral supports and how do you work with individuals who have challenging behaviors. Yeah, it can be tough to change, but uh, once you yeah. start doing it, you know, you get the footing there. I'd like to take a little bit different question here and talk about um, the vaccine. I just received an email that uh, the vaccine is available and that uh, direct support uh, service uh, members are available as frontline workers to receive that vaccine. Right. So our folks are in the allocation in what they call category 1A, uh, which is the first group of individuals to get the vaccine. Uh, really any kind of long-term care or uh, individuals who are as vulnerable as our individuals can be uh, so we are very fortunate that uh, we are in that 1A category, which means as the vaccine rolls out, uh, direct care support folks as well as uh, individuals will have the opportunity to receive that vaccine in, in the first wave of uh, implementation. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I know that was a conversation in the in previous months is yeah. our, our direct uh, workers part of that program uh, in that first phase. Yeah. Uh, and there was a push there for, for that to, right. to happen. And I'm right. so grateful that that yes. did. So now it's getting a, uh, everybody on the team to go get a vaccine. Right. right. <clears throat> um, so it, it is available to individuals now or will be shortly in the future? Shortly in the future. Uh, you know, they're not sure about how quickly it's going to roll out um, 
but it will be in the first wave, for example. I know at our hospitals, uh, they were projected sort of in two-week shifts. Mm. So it's right around the corner. Right then. around the corner, yeah. Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah. And I thought about that. Would you want to give a vaccine to the individual or to the staff that help that individual, that support network? Um, and it's a tough call, but if the support network breaks down and, there, and everybody else's support network breaks down, there's nobody to help out in that case. So I think right. you have to vaccinate in that order. Right. Uh, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about uh, in-person day uh, habilitation. And that's kind of been put on the back burner. I don't want to say back burner, but it's not been available during uh, COVID. Uh, right. So what does that look like? You know, we really gave the providers the opportunity uh, to open in September, uh, but we really left it up to the providers based on their uh, sort of emergency uh, plans and an assessment of whether or not they could safely open. And so really the department's role was reviewing those plans uh, with providers to determine whether or not um, it was safe for them to reopen. As you might suspect, you know, day have programs, if you've seen one, you've seen one. Uh, they could be in a very large building or a very small location. And so uh, we really wanted to support our providers in helping them assess, it, are you able to do it in a safe manner and lay out that in an emergency plan so that, you know, that decision was really something we felt like they needed to make. Uh, because they're right there with individuals and know whether or not they can provide services in a safe manner. Yeah, they have more of the ground groundwork there. They know what's coming in and out of the door right. and how that's going to work. Right. Um, we have a community question here. How can an organization become a provider? So we have uh, what we call provider orientation. Um, the department offers that, and I, I'll check and get you the schedule. I don't know right now which. We can always post COVID, it in chat later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the COVID environment, I'm not sure when they're offering. It'll be online, guys. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they can sign up. They can go to our website and look at becoming a provider. There's a uh, distance learning kind of format for the first phase of that, where you go through and you learn what the requirements are of the department because uh, you know there are quite a few and uh, then there's a what would typically be a face-to-face -face session uh, where they would go more in-depth about how to become a community provider so those services is like a class signing up for maybe right. a semester's long class or what have you right uh, through the department right thank you for answering that i appreciate sure. that <clears throat> um one thing that we've talked about before on previous broadcasts is advocacy. There are individuals and family members that feel like sometimes their voices aren't being heard. Um, and some of the things we've talked about is legislative advocacy. And what would you say to those individuals and family members about how to go through that? You know, it's another area that I think we need to look at. Uh, back in the day when uh, I came up in the field, we had a program called Partner Partners in Policymaking. And it was a program that uh, really taught family members and individuals how to do legislative advocacy. And when I look around at really the leaders in the field, a lot of those folks came up through that program. Um, and so one of the questions I have as commissioner is really, how are we engaging families? Are we helping families understand how to do legislative advocacy. 
Um, and that's just really a question that I have. I know we have a lot of statewide organizations that families uh, can get involved with who may also do legislative advocacy. Uh, but really, you know, we saw honestly a lot more engagement and, uh, you know, some of that really has to do with uh, the budgeting process and, and the department went through a phase like many other state agencies where we were not getting any kind of increase. Uh, the budget situation was pretty dire. And so I think we kind of stepped back a little bit because we knew that it wasn't really possible to get any kind of increase. And so as we've developed these new programs and as we've engaged families in those discussions, I think we've got to put back on the table legislative advocacy. Um, you know, I see a lot of provider advocacy. Our provider organizations are very um, engaged, uh, but I don't see as much legislative advocacy as I did maybe 10 years ago with families and individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and I could be wrong about that. It could be that I'm just far enough removed from it that I don't see it, but I kind of feel like we're not doing as much of that as we did 10 years ago, and I would I'd love to hear from your folks about how they would like to see, um, you know, is it training? Is it, you know, what is it that would help them better engage in legislative advocacy? Um, yeah, I think, um, I think that's awesome. I, I've only been in Alabama for four years, and so I don't have the 10-year experience of what it used to be, but I feel like as a community, uh, we could do a little bit better at advocating there. Uh, and I'm interested, <clears throat> I have heard of the partners in policymaking before, just off the cuff. Um, <clears throat> is that something you think come back? You know, I am going to have a conversation with uh, the planning council, the DD uh, council, uh, probably sometime in January, because um, that program was actually administered by uh, the DD council. And uh, really, I plan to have a conversation with them about you know, how do we help families better engage if it's not partners in policymaking? Is there some other better model that's out there now that we could use to better engage families around legislative advocacy? Yeah, because I, I feel like the community really wants to voice um, yeah. uh, to be able to speak with those people that are making decisions. Um, and it's a very powerful voice uh, if it's yeah. <coughs> delivered correctly. Right. So I'm interested to see what happens there. Um, I'd like to speak a little bit about your uh, philanthropy endeavors that yeah. you do. Yeah. So both organizations, uh, Friendship Mission and Mescal's Children uh, Center for Hope, are faith-based organizations. And with Friendship Mission, I got involved uh, through my church. Uh, we, a Sunday school member, was a member of the board, and uh, they were starting a long-term homeless shelter for men, women, and children. And I had done some work in what I would categorize as emergency shelters here in Montgomery, and it was extremely frustrating because, you know, in that situation where someone is really sort of trying to figure out how to get the next meal and uh, have a roof over their head for the night, they really can't focus on any kind of long-range A week later, plan. month out. Right. It's tough if you gotta figure out where you're getting food. Right, and so I was very excited to hear about the shelter. And so actually my Bible study group, we got engaged with a young woman uh, named Nikki, 
who was 21. She, um, she was homeless and pregnant and uh, gave birth to her son and uh, began living in the shelter. And so there were five of us that for the first year sort of supported her, took her to doctor's appointments, um, did a lot of work with her one-on-one -on -one and, uh, you know, really with her son as well. Uh, and that really inspired me. And so when they approached me about being on the board, it's like, okay. Heck yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> and then I signed up former commissioner, Kathy Sawyer. So, <laughs> so um, enrolling. You know, yeah. I'm like, okay, Kathy, this is, you got to know about this. She, it's one of the most effective uh, programs in the Montgomery community. And um, it, it's really, it made such a difference in the life of uh, Nikki. She's now, she's working, she's living independently. She, um, has two sons. Uh, the older son, Tiger, that uh, was born in the shelter when she was in the shelter, also um, engaged in a pre-K program. Transformation Montgomery operates a pre-K program in Chisholm, and uh, one of our Bible study members decided she was going to teach in the pre-K program, and we had not heard from them for a little while, but I always knew they were going to wind up back in our lives somehow. And so the first day of pre-K, she sends me a text and she's like, you'll never guess who's in my pre-K program. <laughs> and it was a picture of Tiger. And I'm like, okay, so they're back. Yay. <laughs> and actually Nikki is on the board now. That's amazing. Uh, and then, you know, I guess my church roots, I grew up with, you need to support a local mission and a foreign mission. And so when uh, Mescals came up, a church member had, you know, talk to me about it. I knew about it. I participated in their fundraiser and just really saw the work that they were doing and really felt like um, it was really blessed and that, you know, these children really needed that support and they've really grown so far beyond uh, what they originally envisioned. Now, is that a similar type of support? It is. It's actually started out originally as an orphanage for children who absolutely had no other place to live and developed into a school. And so now they're also operating a school and then they're also trying to support families where they can, you know, where those relationships still exist. Sometimes it's only older siblings and really trying to focus now on how do you keep that family unit intact as much as you can. Mm -hmm. uh, but needless to say, there are a lot of barriers uh, to that. Mm -hmm. And um, But the difference they make in the lives of the children is just unbelievable. I like yeah. how you have a local here in Montgomery, and then you also have an international. <laughs> it's my Baptist roots. <laughs> you always support a local mission and a foreign mission, and so you can't get away from your roots your and, duty there yeah <laughs> um well as we kind of come to a close here i'd like to encourage anybody that has a question <clears throat> for commissioner boswell to go ahead and put it in the chat here a lot of likes and hearts i see on there <laughs> um are there any upcoming events that you would recommend uh, individuals or family members kind of prepare for or you would like them to get involved in you know upcoming events are a challenge in a COVID environment but here's what i would say uh, learn everything you can about the new community waiver program. We have a ton of information on our website. Um, the community waiver program is the future of services for individuals with developmental disabilities. 
you know, there's some boring stuff where you might have to read uh, some document that's out for public comment. Read it anyway, mm -hmm. because really it's the future of services for individuals. And then really, uh, I would love to see more uh, family members and individuals begin to think about uh, potentially getting into the field and potentially becoming a provider uh, because that's where the subject matter expertise is. For those families who've been successful at helping their individuals um, get into the community and stay in the community, uh, that's intelligence and in, in, uh, institutional knowledge in the community that we need. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we need to learn from families about how it works. Other providers need to know that. Mm. Um, so I would love to see a lot more folks become community providers. And um, as we kind of sum up here, uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to speak on? You know, I think you've covered it. Um, we covered a lot of territory, so I'm just really excited uh, that, you know, I tell people I feel very lucky to have become the commissioner at this time in the organization because we are doing so many exciting things uh, in the DD division. It's this new community waiver program and it's realizing the dream of really engaging with individuals and through the person-centered planning and really understanding that it's all about the relationships. It's not about, you can have the best program in the world but if you don't have connections and relationships with people, it's really not going to make the difference that mm. uh, needs to be made in order for people to live their best life. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's going to be a, a great future here, and um, I'm grateful that you are a commissioner. And once again, congratulations. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And at this point, we're going to go ahead and end the broadcast. So we'll give a, a quick wave to the audience on your camera and my camera, and we will see you guys later this week.